Hello and welcome to the Israel-Hamas ceasefire. Why now and what's next edition of Intrigue Explained. With me is Dmitry Grodzbinski, the founder and director of Explained Trade. Dmitry, how are you today? I am very well. How are you, John? I'm doing all right. It's Thanksgiving here, so I'm suitably looking forward to getting stuffed full of turkey in the kind of eating it way, not personally being stuffed like a turkey. We've got Helen with us, Helen Jung, my co-founder at International Intrigue, uh, back in DC now, I think. That's right, back in DC and just preparing for the turkey binge as well. Um, Helen, you're off to the COP negotiations in, what, a couple of weeks now? No, next week. Next week, oh my, this year, I don't know where it's gone. You're off to Dubai. Excited about that? I am actually. I'm actually just uh, Googling all the best food that I can eat there because, of course, that's hashtag, you know, priorities uh, when you're there. Uh, but yes, I'll be covering the COP28 stuff for Free Intrigue starting from the 30th to the 6th of December. Fantastic. I'm, of course, your host, John Fowler. Um, I'm the co-founder of International Intrigue as well, um, and all three of us are former Australian diplomats. And the idea is we're going to try and bring some of that insight and expertise to today's topic, and we'll be talking talking through some of the latest developments in Gaza, the hostage negotiations, and then maybe zooming out and having a bit of a look at what all the latest developments mean for the region and what we can expect next. Why don't we kick off, Dimitri, get straight into it. It's a big topic, um, plenty to discuss. Why don't we kick off with you just kind of bringing us up to speed on, I mean, the last week or so of news out of the region has been pretty intense. There's been back and forth negotiations have been ongoing and a deal has been about releasing hostages in exchange for an Israeli pause in the fighting. What's the latest? Right. So to take half a step back, as you said, what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks is a combination of Israel Defense Force, IDF, military operations throughout north and increasingly south Gaza. Uh, Initially, that was a bombing campaign, and now it is a combination of a bombing campaign and ground operations. They've cut Gaza pretty much in half and have begun to move methodically through northern Gaza. At the same time, you had mounting pressure from all over the world for a ceasefire, the humanitarian consequences of what the IDF was doing are, however you stand on the conflict, just objectively fairly horrific. There was a very high level of bombing in a very dense urban area. Humanitarian supplies were only barely trickling in, and distribution was obviously a massive challenge. A lot of dead and wounded, and so pressure was mounting for some sort of ceasefire. At the same time, of the 240 hostages that Hamas uh, took on October 7th, only, I believe, four had been released and one had been rescued. So a significant number of Israelis were still in Hamas hands. So that was the backdrop for this week. I think it's, uh, and just let me, I'll cut in there for one second. I think that's an important point where you, you kind of highlight the nature of the offensive that's going on, probably contributed to the global calls so strongly for a ceasefire. I think that's like the kind of horror of the images we're seeing and the density of it, I think made the calls for a ceasefire kind of unignorable by Israel. And, and, And that's kind of where we're at right now, right? The extent to which Israel is affected by global opinion, the extent to which this is driven by domestic Israeli uh, voices, which have certainly been 
quite vociferous, at least in some quarters of the Israeli public. So there's a lot, there's a lot affecting the decision making of Israel. But the end result of all that have been negotiations hosted in Qatar and mediated by a combination of the Qatari government and the US between Hamas and Israel that as of we're recording this in Europe just before 5 p.m. on Thursday, as of Friday morning, a ceasefire is supposed to go into effect. That ceasefire is temporary, and it is conditioned upon in an initial release of hostages by Hamas and prisoners by Israel. And the terminology of prisoners versus hostages is not uncontentious. I'm not mm. sure this is the podcast to get into it. So I'll be using that terminology, but I wanted to flag it's not uncontroversial. Uh, so Israel has agreed to release Palestinian women and children. Hamas has agreed to release Israeli uh, women and children hostages. They have also apparently agreed, and this was something that delayed the ceasefire by a day. They've agreed apparently to let the Red Cross in to see the hostages that they won't be releasing. Uh, which is something they apparently initially resisted doing. And Israel has also said that during the ceasefire, it will have six-hour periods during which it will not perform aerial operations, including aerial surveillance. Uh, it will expand the humanitarian supply windows. And it is willing to consider extending the ceasefire beyond the initial period if Hamas continues to release hostages. But both sides have basically said this ceasefire is temporary and we plan to resume military operations once it's over. Two very quick thoughts on that. One, I'm not really sure how us or Qatar or Iran, kind of the general folks who seem to have at least open channels to Hamas, how you can enforce an aerial ban for six hours. Presumably Israeli slash US tech is good enough to be able to still monitor that area without you know, those folks knowing, but that's, that's neither here nor there. The other, the other thing that I want to come into, come, come to maybe a bit later is just the dynamics that that idea of setting up for every hostage or every 10 hostages you release, you get another day is that I, I don't know. I haven't heard of anything like that in this kind of context in, in my kind of experience in foreign affairs. It's a very odd kind of dynamic, but Helen, Wait. do you go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, it's actually not very odd in the history of the Israeli, broader Israeli-Palestinian Well, excellent. I, I, let, me, let me set you up right. there. Folks, folks who are listening may not realize, but Helen was an Australian diplomat in Israel for three years. When was mm. it? 2015 to 18, 2015 roughly? 2015 to 2018. Exactly. Yeah. So when, when you talk about, I mean, this is the, the excellent context that you can bring to this. When you talk about this, there's, there's unique things about the conflicts in that region that maybe Dimitri and I don't know. So please go ahead. Going to your point about the hostages, what I want to say there is that the entire history of this very tragic conflict between Israel and Palestine uh, more broadly has been one of the features has been hostage taking, right? This has been sort of a tactic that both sides um, have engaged in. And, you know, I think the most, uh, what, the one that I want to point out, I can point to a lot, you know, that have been probably popularized by, by Hollywood, like including the Munich incident, the Munich Olympic Games. But the one that I think has had the most impact and the most devastating kind of, I guess, long lasting and unintended consequence is Entebbe incident, which, you know, actually in the Benjamin Netanyahu's brother, Yoni Netanyahu in that raid, and he was tragically killed. And so I think 
in some ways, Yoni had meant to be, he was meant to be sort of the golden boy who would go on to lead the country. And instead, uh, it was Benjamin Netanyahu who succeeded his brother. And I think that incident for him had really shaped the way and, you know, going into pop psychology here, but the way that he has viewed the conflict and the way that he has viewed this entire sort of hostage situation as well, if we're taking a step back, right, from all of this. But yeah, lots to say, John. There's a, you know, I've actually been into Gaza in my first or second week, I think, in, in the job I got sent over to, to Gaza. Uh, and it was a very eye-opening experience because I remember witnessing the Norwegian diplomats meeting with Hamas and just being gobsmacked that, you know, that this is something that they did. But, you know, that's what things are like on the ground. Hamas is the de facto uh, ruling party or the de facto authority on the ground. And, you know, so, so who do we have to talk to? So what's what's Qatar's role traditionally in all of this? I mean, I, again, I'm I'm certainly no expert in this, and while I kind of knew that Qatar was, I don't want to say friendly because that you know that may not be an accurate description, but at least keeps open communications with with folks in Gaza, with Hamas in Gaza. What, what's their role? Why do they do that? And and have they always done that? They have is a short answer. But in recent years, whilst, you know, the world has been watching elsewhere, Qatar has been quietly building a coalition of alliances with every country in the region and every major player in the region, including the US, including Turkey, including Hamas and people on the ground in in Gaza. And, you know, for a little while, I think the world was watching and thinking, gosh, what's going on here? But now Qatar is one of the few countries that actually has a representative in Gaza who's able to get to the ear of Hamas leaders. Uh, And so they have actually been, you know, you talk about the honest broker, I don't know about the term honest per se, without sort of to, you know, insult anyone here, but Qatar has been playing all sides and very effectively. And it's really, truly remarkable that they've been able to broker this behind the scenes and, what, you know, support the US. What, what's in it for them? Are they are they particularly anti-Israeli or are they, is it is, is being at the centre of these kinds of huge global negotiations? I say global negotiations because the world's eyes are on it 100%. Do they get leverage out of that as like a, you know, oh, look at tiny little Qatar, which is a tiny petro state. Let's, tiny. let's not Correct. forget that. Yeah. Great, great airlines, but yes, good, good, tiny, tiny <laughs> petro state. And, That's right. Uh, and, you know. and I'm informed great museums too, but do they just get um, incredible leverage out of this because they're, they, they're at the center of everything or what's in it? I mean, in short, yes, right? They've also supported the Muslim Brotherhood, which has, of course, pissed off Egypt in the past, and they've had a tiff with Turkey as well. But, you know, for them, this is a huge power play in the region, uh, and this is sort of the way that they've been able to exert diplomacy um, and project influence uh, around the world, uh, in addition to sort of their, you know, World Cup hosting and what is it, the World Expo hosting, sort of higher-level diplomacy that they've been able to do. So I think it's, it's been truly remarkable what they've been able to pull off. I'd add probably two things. One is that Qatar has a uh, direct link to this because the head of Hamas lives in Qatar. He relocated from Gaza to Qatar, uh, so he is quite literally in their backyard. The second is, and without getting into the complexities of Middle East diplomacy, which are way above my head, Qatar is an interesting space compared to some of the other Gulf states in that it does not have the same active antagonism with Iran that, say, Saudi Arabia does. And so given the Iranian connection with Gaza, um, it is able to play, I don't want to say a more neutral role, I'm sort of similarly cautious to to Helen not to sort of lionize anyone here, 
but they they are able to talk to both sides, including no one hates them specifically horrifically, so they can get into a room with kind of most people. Is that kind of yeah, absolutely. That's what it is at the end of the day. Yes, though it is worth remembering that quite recently they were effectively blockaded by half of their neighbours. I mean, there was literally a blockade of Qatar by their sort of most of the Gulf Corporation Council. So. There, it's 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 Gulf diplomacy. You can't explain it in two minutes. It won't stop us from trying, Dimitri. <laughs> Absolutely not. Read intrigue, everyone. <laughs> no, I don't know a lot about this, so I'm kind of building up a picture of this idea of Qatar, kind of just really well placed to be, and really the only country I think that can do this, right? Like the, the only yeah. country that hasn't. I mean, as you said, rightly said that, that you know they're not necessarily friends, or they don't have that they're, they're not without issues in the region, but at least it feels like they don't have the baggage that obviously the US or the Saudis mm-hmm. or Iran or, you know, Turkey even in the region mm-hmm. couldn't really play that role. Russia, I mean, no way. Like, so that they're kind of one of those countries that like, well, I guess it's you guys. China had that meeting where they were going had to solve go. the Middle East in Beijing, which yeah. was interesting. And, and didn't go super well for them, no. I want to I want to kind of just before we wrap up the actual like news of this week, which is that the, the negotiations and the hostage deal, I want to like ask you guys what you think about this dynamic that that you know more specifically that Netanyahu has said for every 10 hostages you get an extra day of peace which you know in its rawest form is kind of like and I, and I, I really don't mean to be flippant here but it's that idea of like the beatings will continue until morale improves kind of mentality where you sit there and go we will keep killing you until you give us what you want and it it's it, it seems to me a horrific dynamic and then what's in it for Hamas to give away their, like, are they so desperate for respite from the Israeli bombing attack? Are they under so much pressure that they have to do this? Or like, what are the dynamics here? Because it's, it's something that I'm just not, I can't wrap my head around that. I, I don't think our parties are kind of actively in this with a clear end game of what they want. I think like, maybe they can rhetorically say that, publicly say that, but I think Hamas probably didn't expect themselves to succeed as much as they did and to be able to have access to 239 hostages. So this is, um, this is interesting. Is, is this, I can't figure out if that's true or not. I, and I'm, I'm not saying it's not, but like, are these people just so blind? And I, I'm talking about Hamas and Israel on both sides here, to be very clear. Are they so blinded by being in this at the very center of the maelstrom that they don't think a couple of steps ahead? Because if you're the Hamas leader and you go, okay, we're going to execute this attack on Israel, there will be blowback. So we have to think through what goes next. And in Israel's sense, when we, if we go into Gaza, we talked about on an intrigue, you know, a number of times, they have to think about what's next. So I, I, like, do you really think these folks are just like, well, we'll figure it out as we go along? Because it feels like that, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, this is a thing, there's a lot of different voices in the room, right, particularly in the Israeli establishment for people who are trying to figure out how exactly to exercise the three campaigns, which is like domestic, military, as well as political, right? And I mean that like in terms of diplomatic, political, in terms of winning that narrative, right? I think for Hamas, they were genuinely shocked that they were able to get as far as they did, which is why they're kind of making this up as they go. Ultimately, of course, you know, they they say very clearly what they want, which is to obliterate the Israeli um, rhetorically, but I think what they're wanting to get from this and this situation now is to get hostages back, right, and be able to kind of show some kind of win for the Palestinian people and for Gazans. I, I don't think that that's going to, to necessarily succeed, but that's their sort of current current endgame. I'm inclined to agree that it doesn't feel like they expect to have as much, I suppose, success in penetrating Israeli defences 
as they did. And it also feels at least like they very quickly lost control. They managed to penetrate the border in a couple of places and effectively left it open. And violence continued and they very quickly lost elements of command and control. This is not a, a modern elite military with sort of seamless command and control with seamless communications and very quickly. They were running things on analog too, right? Exactly. They were were sort of like, that's how they IDF had missed that, a lot of the intercepts. Exactly. So at that point, they no longer had full control and things got incredibly, even bloodier than I think they had anticipated. Uh, They, you know, there there was some reporting out of, I think, Haaretz that they didn't even realize that Rave was there. And so suddenly they find themselves confronted with 300 civilians and they behave unspeakably. And what you're trying to do there is sort of paint this picture of an idea of like it was step one, this thing, and then God knows what comes next. We'll make it up as we go kind of mentality. Well, no, I I think step one was we raid the border. We have limited success. We take some hostages. We inflict some damage, but not. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying they're unhappy about the damage they inflicted, but I think their anticipation was that they would inflict significantly less, and the amount of damage that they inflicted has unleashed an Israeli response that I think is magnitudes greater than they anticipated. They certainly yeah. anticipated the response. I don't think they anticipated this scale of response. I totally agree, Dim. And look, we've got to think about the context before 7th of October as well. What was happening in the Middle East before then, right? Israel and Saudi Arabia, the two sort of biggest quote-unquote foes in the region, were about to be friends, right? They were about to have this rapprochement and sort of normalized relations, which was unimaginable. Right. And in the years leading up to this, the Palestinian cause and Palestinian statehood and two-state solution had already been on the literal bottom of every talking point list for the Middle East countries when they're talking to Israel. Everybody else had given up on them and there, were, there was no other way to go forward. I'm not condoning the attacks, obviously, uh, but I do think that the Israel-Saudi rapprochement before the 7th of October was really the reason behind them sort of pushing such an attack. And they wanted attention. But of course, instead of that, they managed to access, you know, 240 Israeli civilians. And now the the entire goalpost has changed. So with the negotiations now, does it reflect that Hamas is under great pressure and, and Israel will be able to eradicate it? I think I was very skeptical that, you know, when Netanyahu came out in the hours after the attack or the days after the attack and said, we will eradicate Hamas, you know, good luck in what Dimitri said, the most densely, one of the most densely populated places on earth, fighting an urban battle with folks who've been preparing for this for generations. I was like, good luck. You, I mean, if we know one thing about modern warfare is that you can really be one V a thousand if you, you know, prepare and you hide and you do all the things that terrorists slash Hamas slash militants slash that kind of fighting do. But does the fact that they're willing to negotiate now, well, the Hamas playbook has been... Yes to take hostages and then trade them for hostages in Israeli prison. So does it does it does that mean that they're under pressure or is this just standard operating procedure for Hamas? I think this is standard operating procedure. This okay. is like very much a sort of like a, a tactic that both sides are familiar with in terms of the playbook. Okay. This is, as I think, you know, Dim and I would discuss offline, but this happened um, in the past with like, you know, one Israeli soldier caused one of the operate, you know, one, one of the well, And of course, and the, the, the leader of Hamas was the chap who was released in that exchange, Correct. right? Yeah. yeah. Which is something that, and maybe this is a good chance to talk about the Israeli side of things. 
that obviously has to be a, a, like a front of mind when they talk about these hostage agreements. Like I think there's a, you know, Hamas has got a fresh chance in hell of getting anyone of male of fighting age out of an Israeli prison because of that yeah. kind of thing that's happened before. So it, what's the calculation from Netanyahu? Like, is this just the domestic political stuff that says, you, hey, you've still got, we've still got 200 hostages in Hamas. Like you're going in and like just literally raising the place to the ground. Don't forget about them. Is, is that their calculation, Dimitri? Like, do you think it's politically imperative that they get the hostages back? I think it's I think it's really hard to understand the politics of both sides. I think as Oh of course said, but don't let don't let that stop us. No, never <laughs> to comment. <laughs> this, this this podcast began as two white dudes on a podcast, so there is nothing that can only Helen's holding us back from truly I, I'm stunned the world's problems aren't already solved, if I'm honest, given that If we had more listeners, they they clearly would have been. No. So so beginning beginning with Hamas it is really hard to tell, firstly, how much pressure they're under externally and domestically. On the one hand, you know, I initially shared your skepticism about IDF operations in a des- densely populated urban area. I think what nobody counted on was their willingness to just flatten buildings. The amount of ordnance that has been dropped on airstrikes. northern Gaza through airstrikes. And, and listen, I want to be if maximally fair as the word. As, as John said, the, this is a notion of sending troops into a densely populated urban area that has been pre- preparing to repel them for years. The IDF faces some tough choices if it wants to go in. And the choice, it appears, the Netanyahu government is going with is a ordinance-led strategy where they are eliminating threats to the IDF before the IDF get there through a significant application of firepower uh, in a densely populated area. Yeah, I mean, I think when I answer John's earlier question of like what happens when, you know, the day after with Hamas, right? I don't think they can be eradicated. Politically, mm. it's impossible to eradicate it because it's an idea. It's a resistance movement that, of course, like militarily, yes, you can flatten Hamas and you can sort of deplete their sources and put sanctions on, which, by the way, they still have a lot of uh, operational money as an organization stored elsewhere um, and have the capabilities and the tunnels are still largely intact from what I've read. So even the sort of destructions of you know Gaza's buildings and civilian uh, infrastructure has not eliminated the Hamas movement. I think this this is what happens with asymmetric warfare, right? Even if Hamas politically moves aside, there will be something else that comes the day after that is still resistant to the idea of the IDF and Israel in the area. Helen, I think that's a good point to move on to like, okay, so once we have this four or five day ceasefire, then what? We just back back to back to fighting back to as it was like what, what what does this change if anything i think it's going to change the intensity of the israeli military operations on the ground in gaza i think dial down the ferocity interesting i, I really do I, I think that you know given that they've once they sort of start getting the hostages out i really don't think in you know in large segments of the israeli ruling class they want to have gaza being a failed a sort of i, I think a ruinous state on their border. I, I really don't think that they want to see Gaza. I mean, it already <laughs> is. As, as Dimitri said, it's completely flattened. There's no services. Like, I mean, you can't, re- I can't comprehend how you rebuild Gaza from the photos I've seen. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to take like Qatari money, right? You're going back to your early point of like, what's in this for Qatar? If I'm being very transactional and very, very, you know, cold about this, the way that we're looking at this, I think that there's an opportunity for the Gulf states to come in here and rebuild Gaza as well. But, but, you know, what, what happens next, I think, is that Israel is 
going to go in with more tactical units that are targeted and going into, you know, I don't, I don't have the military terms for this, but really just trying to extrapolate with a, a scalpel rather than the sort of, you know, the hand grenades that they've been using to, to get people out. Um, because that's ultimately what they want. As long as there are no Israelis in Gaza, I think, if I'm speaking frankly, I don't think the IDF really cares what happens to the rest of Gaza to the extent that they, they don't have to be there. What do you think, Dim? Sorry, that was a very, very cold and no, no, it's, a, it's an interesting point, Dim. What, like, what do you particularly on like what's next? Do you think it? Do you agree with Helen that it changes the battle kind of cadence slash tactics and 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 you know, not goals, but the way they achieve those goals? Do you think it changes? I certainly think that's that's an option. I'm trying to think through this from the point of view of the options that Israel has, and this is right. something I think it's really important for people kind of trying to pass this debate in terms of who actually has agency in terms of what happens next 80 to 90 percent of the agency lies with the israeli government mm-hmm. hamas has a small amount of agency too when it comes to releasing the hostages um and as you know i suppose every every leading member of hamas could commit sapaku on live television and that would also change things but if we're speaking within the realms of vague realism short of surrendering themselves to the idf or disbanding the organization. The hostages are their only leverage. The hostages are their leverage. So it's what it, what are the Israeli state's options? So the first question they would have to answer is after October 7th, can they tolerate a Gaza run by Hamas? Full stop. Hamas are the leadership of Gaza. There has not been an election for close to 20 years. I think people, most of the people in Gaza weren't even alive to vote for Hamas when, when there was an election, certainly weren't old enough to do so. But Hamas is currently the leaders of Gaza. Can Israel politically or strategically tolerate that? That is question one, because if the answer is no, then they have to take fairly drastic steps and it opens up a whole bunch of subsequent well, keep keep taking drastic steps like exactly that, that, exactly that would suggest that i mean they're after gonna, the ceasefire yeah that, that suggests they're going to keep just keep on keeping on with this with this campaign of bombing and and going you know almost house to house to kind of root people root the hamas out exactly or because the alternative is some sort of you know the, if, if not hamas then whom the pla doesn't have the authority to to run in Gaza to run and Gaza. and Netanyahu has expressly said that he has I mean I think the US floated that idea and and he expressly said uh, you know absolutely, absolutely not right not. yeah I mean in part he built up you know Netanyahu actively had a strategy of making Hamas more prominent in order yeah. to divide undercut. and conquer yeah so so that's not going to happen people have floated the idea of an international force some sort of international governance for Gaza but let me ask you Who's going to recommend to their government that they send troops into Gaza? The, the Iranians might want to be a little bit closer. <laughs> sure, well, sure. that Israel would agree to. Right. Israel <laughs> yeah. might have some questions about that. Yeah. So, so who's who's going to go? I don't think I don't think the Saudis. I don't think the Qataris are sending troops in. I don't think the Americans are, and that would probably make things worse in a number of ways. Anyway, there aren't a lot of volunteers for that particular mission, um, so it's difficult to see an international force coming in. I think going to your point earlier, John, absolutely when I, what I meant by the scalpel sort of tactics is that they need to remove all of Hamas, including its infrastructure, which includes its tunnels, right? So it's sort of like trying to weed out the people as well as the infrastructure that's there. But that's, that's all I had to say. Dim, please go back, go back to what you were saying. Right. So, so as, as 
Helen, I think, kind of intimated there, one option for Israel after the ceasefire is to go back to a much more sort of intelligence-led and fortify the border approach. So what you had prior to these attacks was Israel felt fairly complacent in its electronic and border wall surveillance technology to protect itself from Hamas. It felt that Hamas had been neutralized as a threat. So I'm, I, so let's just take a step back from that. Like this, I'm talking about the ceasefire right now, the four mm. days. So you mean, right, like start next Tuesday, kind of making preparations to exit is what you're saying there. I think I think hopefully the ceasefire goes longer than four days, but yes. Ah, so you, you think there's a chance that this gets extended and like you know indefinitely? Not indefinitely. I'm so what you're that's an interesting point. So what you're saying is that you know the pause in fighting kind of changes the dynamics politically as well because it makes it potentially harder for Israel to resume fighting because it's kind of hey we're we're at peace and I'm using that quote that, you know, in inverted commas, we're, we're peaceful right now to resume the fighting is kind of, again, such a, it's a, it's a action from Israel that, that then means they have to bear the responsibility for like, you started this again, like there was a pause and then you started it again, rather than just kind of, we're continuing what we're doing. Am I, you get my yeah. point? Does that make it more yeah, difficult yeah, yeah. I, to, to restart? I think you're absolutely right, because it'll be difficult, not just internationally, right, with the international kind of pressures on Israel, but it'd be incredibly difficult for Netanyahu domestically, right? Like we've seen a lot of the pressures from the families of remaining 190 hostages that are still left who won't be leaving this Friday. And there's no way that Netanyahu is not going to be facing all sorts of pressure from their families and their constituents who are pushing for them to also get out. So I think until the last Israeli hostage is out of Gaza, Israel is not going to stop uh, the military operation. So I don't think that the military operation is going to stop despite this sort of lull in fighting. This really mm. is just a humanitarian... So it will resume, you, you're saying, next it week? It will resume, but the manner in which they fight will be different, is what okay. I'm saying, right? And, and that's to my scalpel comment. And Dimitri, you're not saying that it will be indefinite, but you think there's a chance that the ceasefire might continue for a bit longer than to, into mid-next mid, mid next week? Yeah, I think as long as... Hamas is willing to keep releasing hostages, even in fairly small numbers, while that kind of quid pro quo is working, where no Israel is deviate from that, right? Well, it would be hard for Netanyahu if 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 what he is doing is leading to the release of hostages, it would yes. be very hard for him to interrupt that exchange to just go back to go back to military operations while it's working. Now, does this eventually reach a point where Hamas is Runs out of hostages. It either runs out of hostages right. or it runs out of hostages it can find. Because I imagine things are pretty goddamn chaotic down there at the moment. Or, or, for, or, or something else happens. And could it all break down? Yes, absolutely. But they could continue to, to extend this. A, a big question we have is we don't know what kind of domestic pressures Hamas is facing within uh, from the local population as well what kind of pressure they're getting from from iran from others there are a lot of unknowns about her master's decision making as well and i think they have some agency in this but i keep coming back to and i think it's really important to remember, almost everything that happens hereafter in terms of the military operation is determined by the political calculus of bibi netanyahu and his cabinet 
and, and let's and let's we haven't said it today explicitly. But let's remind folks that Bibi Netanyahu's cabinet or the folks that are influential in his political career are some of the most terrific right wing people in Israel in Israel's history. Ben Gavir and, and Smotrich. So that, that I mean, I think it's an important point because the calculus isn't necessarily sitting there being like what's best for minimizing the conflict here? What's best for getting the results we need? Like there is at least some voices in Netanyahu's inner circle saying, potentially saying, let's wipe them all out because that's what they've said before. The way Israeli parliamentary democracy works is it is a lot of parties. And in order to be prime minister, you have to cobble together a coalition of minor parties. Bibi Netanyahu's entire political career has been a gradual drift rightward as he has had to make deals and invite into his inner circle and his cabinet aggressively more right-wing factions of Israeli politics in order to cobble together that majority. Uh, the, the the coalition he has today would be, I think, radically to the right of the one that he started out with in politics. Or, or even radically to the right of the one, I presume, when you were there, Helen. And that's oh, absolutely. Not, and that's not long ago. That's truly like you left, what, like six, five, five years ago. And it's, yeah. I imagine, yeah. an unrecognizable government, or at least there might have been signs there, but something that you guys didn't deal with. In terms Absolutely. Of that but, but, I mean, you know, it's really the demographic of how of Israel, and I think I've mentioned this before in intrigue podcasts of uh, the fact that there's a lot of ultra orthodox families in Israel who are having, you know, much more bigger, bigger population. 10, sizes. 12 kids, right? Yeah, 10, 12 kids versus like the secular Israelis who are living in Tel Aviv, who serve in the army, who work in the sort of high tech sector or one, one or um, two kids kind of vibe one or two kids and so of course you know because of the demographic trends and the way that things are changing in the country sometimes these sort of ultra-orthodox communities are and their and their viewpoints are a bigger part of the Knesset which is the Israeli parliament so I mean I saw things trending that way it may not have been like that I mean it definitely wasn't like that when I was there but I think that this is the the way in which the Israeli society is trending and this is the biggest tragedy, because I think that the Palestinians saw that too, right? They saw the way in which Israeli, the Israeli government was going. And they saw that with the regional dynamics of their supporters befriending that government, that they had no other options. Um, I'm not to, not to say that their option on the 7th of October was an even justifiable one. Uh, it was horrific, of course, but that was, that was a lot of the sentiment that I observed even five years ago. So that's a good point to sort of zoom out even further. We've talked about kind of what might happen in the next couple of weeks to months, but I mean, two questions to both of you. One, how long do you think this military action, war, whatever you want to call what's going on right now in terms of Israeli boots on the ground actively fighting, how long does that last? You know, on one side, are they going to be out pretty soon or are we going to get into a Ukrainian kind of, you know, frozen conflict kind of situation? Dimitri, you mentioned that what does... Gaza look like post this is 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 a big part of determining that question. And then the second question is what happens three like two, three, four, five years out? Like how does this fundamentally reorder what's going on in the Middle East? Or does it kind of just settle back into the, you know, the depressing state of affairs that we've seen for, you know, as long as I've been following geopolitics, which, you know, is is a while now. <laughs> On the first point, John, there's two big forces at play, right? The IDF versus Netanyahu. Right now, everybody is in lockstep with Netanyahu. 
because they need to get the hostages out, right? But what happens the day after when BB has to face the music and the and the hostages come back? He's going to try and drag this out for as long as possible and to try and sort of try and sort of exert Israeli power, project Israeli power, and to show to the Israelis that he is a sound and safe leader. Um, even though the IDF, I think, will probably break from that position when they can, because if nobody, I, I don't think the IDF wants to be in Gaza, boots on the ground, fighting for a long period of time. I think Israel has demonstrated that in their history as well. I mean, not in terms of the occupied territories, but in terms of short, shorter wars that they prefer. But that's being said, you know, the Lebanese war was like 60 days, right? So this is where we're approaching like sort of month and a half. I think this will continue on well into the spring, Northern Hemisphere spring. But a lot of this will depend on, like hinge actually, on what happens with the hostages. I think, I mean, what do you reckon, Dim? Do you, do you agree or do you think I'm batshit? I mean, not for this. Yes. Yeah. I very much don't know what happens next, and I'm not entirely sure that the Israeli government necessarily does either in terms of the fundamental question of what does Gaza look like two years from now? Who is running it? Who lives there? Is genuinely a question that you can see the Israeli government and the Israeli public kind of trying to think through in real time, um, leading to some fairly sort of horrific suggestions. The notion of, for example, depopulating the place and trying to drive them all into Egypt is the sort of insane thing you see said by various fringes of Israeli politics. Others are kind of talking about a clean get in, get out, and then sort of slam the door behind it and build a very high wall Others are talking about an Israeli administration. You, you hear comments from various Israeli spokespeople that say there's going to be a period where we're going to have to run things or we're going to have to administer Gaza for a while. I don't think they've necessarily thought through what that looks like or how that's sustainable. As Helen said, I'm not sure the IDF is keen on a permanent occupation of Gaza where they are being sniped at from every window. That's not in the IDF's interest. So I don't I don't know what I don't know where it goes and I'm not sure the Israelis do either. Again, I, I don't want to harp on this, but it just it's just unfathomable. I mean Israel took a couple of weeks before actually launching the offensive after the attacks on October 7. So they they clearly planned at least some element of the military actions, took their time. I mean, they didn't just rush across the border on October 8. They kind of, you know, probably took their time. So I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with anything you've just said, but it is unfathomable to me that in 2023 with with everything we know, with the, you know, the the access to expertise, the, I mean, the all that kind of stuff, that they aren't thinking this through. Like, like can that be true? We know from history that, yes, it's and true, this stuff happens all the time. They launch, you launch invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan and you, and you think literally one step ahead. But like, I just can't imagine that no one in Netanyahu's war council, which is more bipartisan, said, fine, but we have to be prepared to, I mean, if we're writing about it in our newsletter, they're thinking about what's next. But you've been in these rooms, John, and you know exactly how it works. There are people going, we don't have a plan yet. And then there's another group of people going, okay, well, here are our three options. We've developed three scenarios, Prime Minister, on what we could do afterwards. And you present it to the Prime Minister, and they're all bad. And let's be honest, this is the Middle East. There are no good options for, for anybody. There are no options that are politically painless, morally unhorrific, and without risk. And it is entirely possible that the Prime Minister looks at all three of those and goes... I am not yet prepared to make a decision on which one of these we go with. 
but proceed as you are. We will cross that bridge when we come to it. And frankly, he is hoping something turns up that means he doesn't have to make that decision. We have all seen that kind of thing happen right in front of our eyes with, with policymakers time and time again. And I kind of suspect that might be happening here. John, I totally agree with that. But I think that DM, the key thing about Gaza is that it's not just Israel in this picture, it's Egypt as well, right? And a key sort of player determining what happens with the future of Gaza as well is Egypt, who of course share their, their rougher border crossing with Gaza. So I think maybe going to your second question, John, about like what happens three to five years about the regional dynamics in the Middle East. I think that, you know, if we think about the fact that there's probably not going to be an indigenous Palestinian sort of um, political body that's able to rule Gaza, then there might be a multilateral sort of party that's there, right? And this is not unprecedented. We have UNSO, we have UN Truce Revision Organization at the border, Israel's border with Jordan. We have the UNIFIL up in Lebanon, and then we have the multinational force observers in the Sinai. Now, these are all remnants from previous wars that we've seen in Israel with its neighbors and uh, an UNDOF, sorry, which is the disengagement force with Syria. So it's there's certainly a precedent for it, whether or not the UN is going to get in there and create a sort of similar kind of observatory sort of truce observation group to um, protect the peace and ensure that Palestine is able to rebuild or Gaza is able to rebuild is a different matter, right? But I think going to the broader three to five years picture, the bigger question there and the one that needs to be so resolved is whether or not there's going to be Palestinian statehood and whether or not there's going to be a two-state solution. What we saw trending there was that the Middle East countries and the sort of Arab League didn't necessarily prioritize this as an option. So even with everything that was raging, it was a relatively muted response from Israel's neighbours, right? We saw some sort of rocket fire coming over from Lebanon. We saw rocket fire from Syria. We saw the Houthis, who are a proxy of Iran, firing off some rockets in Yemen. But by and large, there's been, it's been a pretty quiet response, right? So if that was what it was like at the heat, at the worst of the conflict, I don't think that after the hostage exchange happens and things you know, calm down in terms of military fighting in Gaza. I don't think then that the that the Arab states will necessarily, you know, shift the picture per se. So I still think that Israel normalization in the Middle East is going to continue. It's just going to be a much more slow and probably less public um, procedure. Can I say two things on that? On on Helen's point about the response by Hezbollah and Syria, I think we have to give some credit to the Biden administration there, moving the carriers forward. They, they moved their carriers forward, and I think they sent some backroom messages that basically told Assad, told Hezbollah, and told Iran that October was not the month during which they wanted to get loud. Um, and so a lot of what we saw was kind of fairly performative. The head of Hezbollah especially gave these very, very well publicized, there were hype videos for his speeches during which he got in front of a podium and then said like nothing. And then basically spent like Straight an hour basically being like, yeah, no, we, we're not going to really attack, but sort of go team. Which I think speaks to the fact that Hamas took everyone by surprise a little bit, that Hezbollah wasn't planning for this. Then they were like, can we really launch an effective, uh, you know, spur of the moment attack from the top? And, yeah. and Biden did enough, Biden administration did enough to be like, you probably can't, so don't try it. Yeah, I think the, the combination of the Biden administration, how horrific the Hamas attack was, and the fact that afterwards, I think it's clear that Israel felt like it had pretty much carte blanche 
to level threats. Um, they haven't, you know, how much restraint they've shown before is debatable, but it, it was very clear that the IDF was off the leash and you had US carrier battle groups sitting in the Gulf, both sending the message of going, you guys, you guys don't want this right now. And I think that was that was effective in preventing a regional conflict, which it's hard to remember now, but on day two, everybody was the talking real you know, risk. Yeah, you know, David Sachs or whatever is tweeting about World War Three because the, the, the entire region's gonna spiral and it didn't happen. Mind you, I, I don't think the region wants to spiral. They've got so many problems within their own domestic countries that they're trying to wrap up, right? Like they, they have a lot of things that they need to triage. And unfortunately, yeah. it's just fighting Israel and the US is not really up there. So. Yeah, well, I think, I think I mean, we honestly could talk about this for probably seven hours. We could go all Joe Rogan length on this, but I let's let's leave it there. And maybe we can revisit it in a couple of weeks, maybe early next year and kind of reflect on what we've talked about here and sort of see where we were wrong and where we where we kind of were right because it's not just a navel gazing exercise to do that kind of stuff i think it's really it's something that doesn't get done enough in the modern media landscape of reflecting on your previous thoughts and updating your priors and figuring out you know it's not shameful to be wrong about stuff it's kind of shameful not to go back and think about why you got it wrong so you don't get it wrong in the future so maybe we can come back and talk about it in in the future if there's interest in that but as we're going to do every week we're going to do a little small talk, a little, a little what's in the back pocket for when you're in an insufferable room and you need to kind of get through the evening with something that is more substantive than the weather, but not so substantive like the conversation we've just had. Uh, Dimitri, why don't, what are you going to be using to, to get out of jail? So some statistics have just come out that the UK has just had its highest net immigration numbers I think in all like almost recorded history so there's sort of half a million six hundred thousand more people entered the uk over over the year than emigrated and left and that combined with the election in the netherlands of uh get wilder and the far right party has reminded me to be a terrible bore about the fact that it should be a massive source of pride when hundreds of thousands of people think your country is so cool they want to move to it. The media is treating this as some combination of a national tragedy or a massive gotcha on the Brexit folks of like, haha, you left the European Union to take control of your border, but now people have come anyway. And I'm going to be the one going, you yeah, know, you gave those people visas, you control your border. People wanted to come and live and work in your country because they think it's great. You should you should feel pretty chuffed about that, actually. Uh, and then everyone's going to throw things at me. So it's just normal normal service resumed. Yeah. All right, I, I'll give you mine, and then Helen, we can wrap up with yours. I'm unfortunately going to be a little bit of a bore as well because we're leading up to the climate change uh, conference, as we talked about in Dubai, and you know, no comment on any of the politics surrounding that. But there's two things that I that I thought were really interesting. The first is an article in the New York Times, which we can put into the show notes from a climate scientist, a doctor called Kate Marvel. So that's good enough in its own for make me read it. Um, you know, a climate scientist called Dr. Marvel. But essentially she says something that I've been saying for a long time, which is, I don't know what the climate move wants to achieve by continually doomsaying and screaming into the void about how everything's going to hell. I don't, I, I mean, that's, that's a great strategy to bring a new issue to light and get people to pay attention to it. People, everybody on the planet who has a smartphone or access to the internet is aware of climate change. And I think the vibe shift has to now be to like, we can do stuff, get off your ass and go and help and invent things and, and negotiate. And her whole article is that I, she was like, I am, 
shifting to optimism. We can do this. There's tons of stuff that we can do. We need to have a general sense of this is an achievable thing. You know, we didn't go to the moon by screaming at how far away it was. We did it because we're like, ah, oh, well, we're going to do it. And and that's her general sense. And I think oh, it's a really hmm. important message to kind of change the narrative because uh, too many people I talk to, um, particularly of my generation and, and older, are just like, well, everything's everything's stuffed. So why not just have a good life and, and you know, let the next generation figure it out. And I think a lot of that is because people doom so much constantly. And, and not saying that it's not truthful dooming, but it's just not helpful. And then that leads me to the very quick second thing is that we can put this in the show notes as well, is that the UN Environment Program released a report, and I am a massive hater of multilateral institutions putting out dense reports. And this report is dense. Emissions Gap Report 2023. So like, oh boy, that's a, a, good, a good sedative if ever there was yeah. one. But Real the cover... The art, the art on the cover is super cool. It's called the, the the title of the report is called Broken Record, and they have this image. You know, I probably shouldn't describe it because it's not going to do it justice. But this image of a record that's kind of like all these heat lines and wobbled, kind of distorted record, a record like an LP playing. I'll, we'll put it in the show notes. But I just was like, it's really cool that a someone's being like, let's be positive about climate change, and then b the UN is like putting time and effort into designing this stuff to make it. You know, it wasn't wildfires and blah, blah, blah. It was cool design. So, you know, at, to the extent that packaging this stuff matters, I feel like it's, uh, those are two good stories. John's proud of the UN for buying a DALI 3 subscription is well, really I, the headline for this week. Exactly right. Yeah, you just know I, that I'm, poor, poor but, unpaid intern who's done this and I was gonna say no to me, credit whatsoever. They should have used AI because it would have cost them five cents. They will have 100% tendered out a million dollar design thing to, you know, some huge German design design house. But anyway, anyway Helen, take us out. That's What's right. yours? Klaus, Klaus has and his designs. Well, look, I, I'm just there. I'm going to go ahead to cop him. I'm very excited about checking out the Australian Pavilion, which actually has the best coffee in the entire cop. 28 gathering every year apparently but that's that's not my my snippet for this week i actually have a pretty grim one which is that i you know my my partner way to bring is down the gaza episode oh i i know right <laughs> just because i don't think we quite hit rock bottom there but look my partner is currently traveling around china doing a meeting with with in, in the policy space and he contacted me yesterday and was like, I'm really sick. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, we'll get some sleep. And then today I saw news that there is a new mystery influenza virus that's come out from oh, China. Oh, come on now. <laughs> this is what you're bringing to a cocktail party to like small talk. By the way, COVID 2.0 is here. Do. Watch it. Oh, come on. Hang on. I, yeah, correct. But the, between the three of us, come on, we've got one guy who's talking about cop. The other guy who's talking we're, about. We've got to do what, better. Yeah, I mean, between the three of us, we're all equally guilty. But look, my, my point is, Neil is not allowed back into the house. And that, that's, that well, seems that's fair. But t- tell us more about this. Inf- like, do you have any information on it? Is this is this kind of like January 20, 2020? Yeah, that's right. I'm, it, yeah, it's, it's not a bat this time. That's all I can <sighs> say. No, I think this, firstly, it's a sort of respiratory infection. I think it's um, currently infecting a lot of children. So a lot of kids um, have been you know, images of kids um, in overcrowded hospitals. No, 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 no. Uh, all right. You all asked right. for more, John. I, I, I did. More. I did. I did. Stay well, I away guess... from Xi'an. That's all I have to say. So the terracotta they... warrior, that's where it's at. That's my Christmas plans. <laughs> All right. No well, terracotta warriors for you, Dim. Um, a public note to the three of us: Let's come up with more <laughs> trivial and whimsical, you know, small talk chats for next 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 week. No more climate change. No more. 
you know, no more, oh, by the way, everyone's going to die if it's not Gaza. Could China be send influenza. another balloon? Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah we need more spy when the balloon was in the air. And Jesus, All right, three folks. of us would be such terrible company at parties anyway. But, yeah, <laughs> thanks, exactly. Mm. Exactly. Thanks, Dimitri, thanks so much. Great to chat with you. Uh, we'll chat next week. Thank you. Helen, as always, we'll talk between now and next week, but we'll we'll, we'll talk uh, in a podcast form next week as well. Thanks for, thanks for uh, and genuinely thanks for sharing your insights on, on Israel. I'm always really interested to hear what you have to say because you are someone who actually knows what you're talking about, which is always a plus. Thanks, John. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please leave a rating and a review for the show on your favorite podcast app.